heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into worthless discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, this phrase that Paul closes out with here is continuing in sort of the theme that I see Paul teaching Timothy, and that is the theme of stewardship. That as believers, we are stewards of that which is not ours, but belongs to someone else. Our lives, which is not our own, but has been bought with a price. We are stewards of one another. We have responsibility to care for one another and to oversee each other's well-being. We are to look after other people's interests as we do our own, counting ourselves not as greater than others, but that we count others greater than ourselves. We also see that Paul, throughout all of his writing, has taught that he was a steward of the gospel given to him by the good grace of God alone through Jesus Christ, and that what he has and the message he has and the job and the role that he has as an apostle is not his own, but is Christ given to him by his command. And so we then are to be stewards, stewards of the gospel, stewards of the body, stewards of our lives, stewards of our money, stewards of our time, stewards of our thoughts. We are to be stewards of the word. We are to be stewards of righteousness. Remember, we talked about that last week. And today, we're going to learn that we ought to be stewards of the law, the law of God, because we are stewards of the law. And not only that, we're stewards of God in his word as he's commanded us to know it and understand it, and then also by his spirit granted us that change of mind to see it and to rest therein. And so as we come to this type of text, there's something that's very important, and I'll, I'm going to be very redundant as we continue in this letter, and it's purposeful. Because if we miss the point of this, we're going to do exactly what Paul is teaching against. If we miss the point of where we're to understand the doing of the Christian life and the being of the Christian life and the commandments to the Christian church, to the New Testament church, if we misunderstand those things, we are going to actually blaspheme Christ. We're going to put our hopes and efforts and our striving in our own doing. And then we may get uber spiritual in that doing and may thank God for all that we have become and all that we're able to accomplish. And that's what was happening. You'll notice that, that Paul doesn't tell Timothy the details of any of these teachings because to expressly delineate Error is to actually blaspheme Christ, to deal with, to the, from the pulpit, all of the wrongs and spend so much time in the wrongs takes the focus off of that which is the power of God unto salvation. Just like those who preach obedience and assurance through obedience defames the gospel of grace, so does 
continuing to, 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 to foolishly expose and express error after error after error. Our mouths should not be movements and mechanisms for error spewing into the ears of our brothers and sisters. The elders had a very good meeting this past Friday evening, and we were looking at some things that we're writing, and, and, and we just decided to remove all references to any reference. Going to stick with the scripture and just make assertion based on what the Bible teaches because even in small things, even a footnote can often derail us. Don't believe me? Study Bibles, the worst invention of the 19th century. Terrible. Why? Because we read the notes, the footnotes, the cross references, the commentary. We find our time, and, and you know how they're written, right? See, my Bible has just the text, but the study Bible, there's this much text and this much footnote. There's all sorts of things to learn and charts and pictures, and they have their place, just like an atlas or a globe. You don't use a globe driving cross country, and you don't really use an atlas in outer space, but to each his own. The study Bible, just like all other things, take our focus off of that which God is teaching simply by His Spirit through His Word for His people, and it puts it on the efforts of men to extrapolate and to expand and to garner new knowledge that's beyond the simplistic of what God has revealed. And so, as an academic, I stand before you having read millions and millions of pages, and I don't know to dare say billions of words, but probably so, Either or. But just the same, at the end of it all, I have to ask the question, so what? What difference does it make? For no matter what I say that comes out of my mouth, it does not hold any authority over you or in your lives except that it can be proven according to the text of Scripture. And Scripture is the first and final authority of the church. So here, Paul is teaching this young elder to stay in Ephesus. He's not making much of the error. He's making much of the gospel. He's making much of the fact that there are people who are dividing and, 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 and being divisive because of their behavior, because of their refusal to be quiet, because of their refusal to sit still and be taught. But their opinions, and if you know the word heresy has four meanings. It means an alternate opinion. It means a sect or belonging. It also means a damnable doctrine or a damnable opinion about the person of Christ, and it means division. And so in all those ways, the predominant way in which the word heresy is used in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, where we find that it always refers to identifying certain sects of people. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And if we look at the Old Testament, we see the, some, of the, some of the verb usages of the variants of that term. We can actually see where God uses the word heresy in, cho in choosing things he wants. <laughs> because he has the privilege of being particular and choosing, making differences and segmenting things. So words are manifold in their understanding, even in the Bible. We need to remember that. When we argue about them, we're heretics. We're causing division. You see what I'm saying? When we are causing other people to fear and be frustrated. And that's what was happening here. We get to the place where we find that people who are, what does he say? Swerving from love, a pure heart and a good conscience. Swerving from the grace that is theirs in 
Christ, swerving from the simple reality of Christ is all, causing problems. And it's not always biblical things amongst the people of God, is it? Sometimes it's political things. I'm going to have people who will not speak to me today because I refuse to listen to a 42-minute podcast about nonsense. Now, I'm not listening to that. Why won't you listen to that? You don't love the Lord if you won't listen to that. Okay, then I don't love the Lord you're talking about. That's fine. You don't love me. Well, I must not. If loving you means I have to listen to this nonsense, then hate it is. You see? But we're all there. As a matter of fact, I could probably, if we had all of the resources and the sticky notes and the pencils and the back of the seats and all that kind of stuff, I could get the cards out. I could say, okay, everybody write down your top three fears. And for the parents in the room, it's got something to do with our children or health or death or, or something that's going on in our lives. The outcome of uncertainty. We don't know what's really going to take place. And then for others, if I, if I focused on spiritually speaking, most everybody would have something written down that centered in this particular or that rested in this particular category. And that category would be, I don't want to disappoint the Lord. Or I'm scared of not doing what is right. Now when we read Paul's letter to the Roman church, to the believers of Rome, we see his first eight chapters. They weren't his chapters. He just wrote. We've talked. We've, ta- we've marked them as eight. The first eight sections of that letter as we have identified them historically. Paul talks about doing that which he doesn't want to do. He talks about his flesh being a slave to sin. And by the way, that is all in present tense. It's not something Paul was. It's who Paul is as he walks around in this meat soda head. And then he laments at the very end and he cries out in a way of expressing what he knows his readers are also going through. Because remember, a majority of the readers in the letter to the letter, excuse me, in Rome, the recipients of the letter to the Romans, they were not raised in the spiritual garb that the Jews were. They were raised in a very free society, a free thinking society that... Uh, you know, universalistic ideas and, 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 and all sorts of, you know, open thoughts about what gods are and what life is, etc. And so when they came to believe by the power of Christ in him and his promises to them and his finished work for them, they were a little perplexed because it was very easy for the long-sitting Jewish man to say, when I was a child and we prayed this way and we ate this way and we dressed this way and we circumcised this way and we see what happens to the, all the churches of the region of Galatia. The same is true today. We find people who are uh, long-fitted in evangelical faith, long-fitted in the history and the traditions of the church, whether it be Baptist or not Baptist. Uh, and those are the divisions, by the way. And, um, and then, you know, evangelical or orthodox or, or whatever it might be, we often tend to lend credibility to someone who's sat there longer, who's had more experience. But beloved, the longer the experience, the more likely the world has and the flesh has crept in. The further away from Scripture we get in practice, the easier it is we leave holes and ditches that are so wide, we're really in the ditch when we think we're in the road. And I could talk like this for the next hour, and you could never land your plane on the point I'm trying to make. But ultimately, 
The pinnacle of the Christian life living out today is not for us to fear what we're doing might offend God. But to rest in the sufficiency of what God did in killing his son for the offense. That's why Paul says, therefore now there is no condemnation. Therefore now there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There are some people who don't want to preach the full counsel of the word of God because they're so fearful of causing the church to be fearful that they don't want to tell them things that they're proper for Christians to do. Okay. And then there are some people who don't want to preach grace because they're afraid that Christians will live like worldlies. And I don't think there's any such thing as a balance. I don't think the apostles were thinking, there's a balance. Where is a balance? Salvation is by grace, period. End of story. And if you never learn another thing from the Bible, you don't need it. But if you're going to get together and you're going to cooperate together and you're going to give glory to Christ, then there are some instructions given to us. The very fact that I stand before you a qualified elder by the mercies of God comes from the Bible, you see. So if we're not willing to learn from the Scripture the things to do, then we're never going to do anything. And then we see that the Scripture even writes about congregations who had a lot of people who did nothing. And what did Paul say? I know they're hungry, but let them starve. 2 Thessalonians. Those people that won't work, that are sitting on their butts waiting for the Lord, who refuse to do what is called of them and required of them, just in humanity, much less, amongst the children of God, let them starve. Does that sound like ministry? But it is, you see. So it's not really a balance, it's knowing. It's a stewardship issue. Knowing how to read the Bible. And beloved, if we don't understand what Paul is saying in verses 8, 9, and 10, 11, we're not going to understand the scripture. We're not going to understand all these things because what do we do? It's very easy. Beloved, why is the Christian book community so profitable? I mean, what, has been, what needs to be said that hasn't been said? In the Bible, what highbrow, divinely gifted brain is necessary for the average Joe and Jane like us to figure out what the Bible's teaching? Does God have these semi-prophets going on today? Why are there so many books? What are the books? The books are either parsing out further details of the legal debates about certain teachings of the scripture, and I'm not going to use the word doctrine anymore today. I'm going to use the word teachings every time I want to talk about doctrine because that's what it is. And then the other side of that is things that we must do to fulfill our lives as Christians, like how to pray, how to pray effectively, how to pray spiritually, how to pray in the spirit, how to spiritually spiritual pray in the spirit spiritually. How to pray over your meals, how to pray with your eyes open, how to pray with your hands raised, how to pray with your head bowed, how to pray in public, how to pray in private, how to speak, how to deal with difficult people. Jesus rules of jealousy. I mean, you know, the shack, the wheelbarrow, the grocery bag. I mean, we could write a book about these things and we could fill it full of stuff, you know, the grocery bag. Remember when we used to, well, actually going back to that in a lot of places. Or you go to some place, they don't even give you bags. You've got to walk out like a homeless person. 
the 700 rolls of toilet paper. It's a reenactment of uh, Pilgrim's Progress. You put it on your back and just go. But you know, in the bag, when I was a child, that building over there was Baggett's IGA. And we went in there and Miss Baggett would punch you out. You know, for those of you who grew up here, you know what I'm talking about. And if you didn't grow up here, you grew up somewhere where there, before they had automated systems and scanners and stuff. You were at the will of the presser. The point I'm making is that I could build an entire theology around that. Around that. I could talk about patience. I could talk about how God showed me patience. Or about how preparation requires love and all these other things, and about how you place things in the bag, and whatever you place in the bag is the only thing you're ever going to get out of the bag. And you've got to be careful that things are in the You know what I'm saying? Where's my bread? I left it on the counter because it's always last, right? I've left the bread on the counter many times. Did you get the eggs? Did you get the bread? No, they're still sitting at the grocery. <laughs> got to hook the meal back up, and two hours later, we're back. I mean, see, there's a theology there, right? But it's not biblical, and be careful that the lids are tight, that things are where they need to be. Don't make the bag too heavy, you can't lift it. Don't make it too light or you'll throw it over your shoulder. Don't make sure there's nothing leaking or it'll fall on the ground and everything will go to waste. That's the Christian life. That's baloney. It's not the Christian life. Because even that, as nonsensical as it is, somebody's going to make a million dollars on that. Probably, watch. Why do we have all these things? Because people want to know what they need to know about knowing how to live for the Lord. Ugh. They're so scared. We're so scared. And gospel preachers aren't preaching the gospel. So no one is living in the state of no condemnation. We're all living in the state of a no condemnation. <laughs> Even though we say mercy, mercy, grace, grace. And I've had people in our, in our congregation before through the years be so upset that they call me and ask me what heinous sin that I have in my life because I preached grace too, too strongly. And must be that there was something I was not wanting to approach because to preach grace that strongly means that there's something you are hiding that's deeply wicked. I'm, saying, I'm not hiding it. You want a list? I don't have to hide it. But where is the hope? It's not in obedience. And beloved, there is no other way to put it, Paul, the way Paul puts it right here. He says, people were teaching things, teachings, contrary to what he had taught, contrary to what he had written, contrary to what he had explained concerning the prophets who taught of Christ. Moses included Genesis 1 and 2. And in verse 8, these people who wanted to be teachers of the law, why would we want to be teachers of the law? What is the law? You know, the law could be defined in many ways, but I mean, let's be honest. You've got laws today in the state of Georgia, and they just get more and more and more laws. Why do people make laws? Because people do dumb stuff. People do bad stuff. People do wrong stuff. And people in general, we're just stupid. And when we follow our flesh, we do dumb, dumb things. And we hurt ourselves and we hurt others and we hurt the economy. We hurt businesses and we hurt people's 
uh, people, we cause people to fear. And so the governors of our world have to come together and go, okay, well, that's not really bad what they're doing. We've got to make a law so that we can kill them for it. We've got people spitting on the sidewalks, and we just can't have that. We're going to make a law that it's a misdemeanor to spit on the sidewalk and comes with a $50 fine. If you do it twice, you go to jail for 24 hours. If you do it three times, it's 30 days. That's a real law in the state of Georgia. Now, could you imagine Barney Five in South Georgia during hunting season outside the huddle house where every man in there puts tobacco this big in his mouth? Boy, the tax base would be so low if we could find people for spitting. Look at the law of Moses. If you spit on the ground, you could spit, but you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. So from 6, let's just be general, 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday, it was your Sabbath. Why couldn't you spit on the ground? Because your saliva would mix with the dirt and it would farrow the ground and it's work. And if you spit, you deserve to die. You deserve for the elders and the people and the children who can walk to pick up stones and drag you outside the city and to smash your body until the birds eat your remains. And I know that's graphic, but that's what the law is for. Don't spit. You see what I mean? Now imagine if you have a habit of spitting. And now you know that if you walk outside, we're going to hit you in the head with a rock. Or take away all your money. Or shame you. Put you on the front page of the spitters at large. I mean, you know, we're looking for these spitters and their spittle. Got the evidence right here. This little bag next to my sandwich. Gross. How would you live? You'd live in fear. That's what the law. Law is a set of rules to convict through and by. The laws of Moses, the precepts, are things that brought condemnation to the people of Israel. But there's also the good side of the law, right? Because what does Paul say? The law is good. Why is it good? There are several things. And we've taught these things before from this pulpit many times. Many of us. The law reflects the nature of God's holiness. The law establishes good and proper etiquette when it comes to living together as a people. Why were there dietary laws for the people of Israel? So they wouldn't die of heart disease. You see? Why are there laws about alcohol use? Because if it weren't there, everybody could abuse it without recourse. And there's always the, you know, the anecdote. Well, you know, that little country there has no laws and, well, they got no alcohol either. <laughs> you know, they got no economy. They just like to have water, that kind of stuff. And I'm being funny. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not interested in looking that up. The point is, is that sometimes these things that are commanded of us show us something and sometimes they teach us something and sometimes they establish a pattern of life that will help us get along and do what is good. I had a sister ask this week, should I teach my children and grandchildren to not lie? Yes. Why do we teach them to not lie? Because they lie. 
I mean, do we sit our children down and say, okay, there's several things that you need to know that you should never do. You should not lie. And the children go, what's a lie? That's when everything is going well and there's truth all around and someone asks you about what is really true and you tell something different to deceive them. Oh my, I never, who would do that? I mean, you know, no, we don't teach our children not to lie so that we preemptively stop them from ever lying. We teach them not to lie when we catch them in a lie. We teach them not to steal because it's wrong. The law is good. But what's the ultimate purpose of the law being good? And we're gonna, I'm going to hammer it today. I'm going to hammer the unbalanced side of Paul's argument for the law in the context of Ephesus in the first century. And it's going to make some of us squirm because we like the order of laws, right? Isn't that what we want? We want to be told what to do. We want to be told how to apply the Bible in such a way. Pastor, give us three closing points to put on our refrigerator so that we can practice this week. Here they are. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. And it goes without saying, thirdly, read your Bible. If we're not doing that, we shouldn't do anything else. And how many of us can actually stop our minds from sin? If you figure that out, come take my place. Because I need to take notes. So the law. What does Paul say? We know that the law is good. Verse 8, the law is good. It's not evil. But the law is only good when it is used lawfully. Now think about that for a second. I mean, have you ever heard of an unjust law? Not from God's word. But have you ever heard of an unjust law? Absolutely. The Pharisees had unjust laws. You can read the Mishnahs. You can read the Mishnah. You can read all of the, the laws of, of the Jews and things that they added and things that they made new laws that would try to circumvent old laws and get away with it. Especially the travel laws and the perimeter laws and the cooking laws. And the, it's a pandemic of living rightly. The law is good if it's used lawfully. But there are some times where laws are just unlawful. I saw this as a picture this morning. You know, the people who hid Jews during the Holocaust were violating the law. And the people who killed them were obeying the law. That law was not right, you see. Just because something's a law in the land doesn't make it godly. But the law of God. The law is laid down. Understanding this. You understand? That's, a, that's, that's an active ongoing reality the law is good if one uses it lawfully understanding this so he explains what lawful use of the law is and this is the only lawful use of the law the law is not laid down for the just you ever been scared of going to prison for uh, trafficking crack cocaine or trafficking cocaine no probably not some of you maybe, I don't know, but probably not. You, you're scared to go in prison for, you know, breaking into the Pentagon, stealing some papers? Probably not. Why? Because you've never done that. 
when we've never done something, we're really not fearful of being in trouble for it. The law is laid down for the lawless. The law is laid down for the disobedient. The law is laid down for ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane. I want you to, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this, but it take me about 10 minutes. But I want you to look what Paul has done. Ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, striking fathers, mothers, murderers, sexual sins, enslavers, haters of people, liars, perjurers, false witness, whatever else, covetousness, thievery, adultery. (laughs) He just went through the Decalogue. He just went through it. He's basically saying, look, the law was written. Even the Decalogue was written for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, those who do these things, those who break these things, those who don't obey these things. That's why the law was written. Why? Why? So that they would die. So they would be found guilty. And and I just want you to understand, this is not the only place. Everything Paul writes, if you want a real hard slap in the face in this reality, go to Galatians and read that letter. Pay close attention. But it's easy for us to pay close attention to the instruction rather than it is the grace. We think that we're gaining some merit while claiming to be under grace, we think that the gospel works with the law, but it's in contrast to it. And that's why we have such ridiculous evangelical methods. You know, I'm going to tell everybody how bad they are, and then when I tell them how bad they are, I'm going to tell them how good they can be. See, that's what evangelicalism has become in America. That's the predominant M.O. I'm going to get out here and tell everybody who hasn't even thought about it. They've thought about it. Everybody knows they've got sin in their life. I've met two people in my entire life who've said they've never sinned. And do you know that even when you show them the law, they still think they've kept it? You're not going to find somebody who thinks they've never sinned that the Ten Commandments are going to change their mind. It's not going to happen. And beloved, any of us who think that we are keeping the law of God in our efforts and even by the power of Christ in any real practical way are lying. As I was thinking about this, I thought about how my father for, you know, over 40 years served with integrity in law enforcement. Integrity, truth, honesty. And how how many judges I know and how, how many federal agents I know and, 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 and people that work at the White House and, and all this stuff and having pastored down at Glencoe and, and stuff. I mean, I just know a lot of law enforcement and a lot of judges and a lot of people in the court systems. Just grew up around them. Yet none of them ever have ever fulfilled the law even though they are by God's design to enforce it. And there's always a season where somebody's suing somebody in some weird community 
because they're taking down, you know, these gargantuan relics of the Ten Commandments from courthouses. As if we've kept those laws. Do you really want those laws hanging over you? Do you really want it? It was laid down for the wicked. It was laid down for the guilty. And beloved, if you, if you read the scripture and you read the righteousness of God, and you don't come away knowing that you can't keep it, there's more to talk about than just an understanding of the law and grace. The law was laid down for the ungodly. It indicts, it convicts, and it sentences. The law brings death. That's what Paul is saying. It's not my words. It's not my opinion. It's syntactical. A, B, C. And that which is contextually and, and in the syntax of the text supersedes, trumps, and annihilates any other ideology that is derived from any other study therein. That which is there clearly overcomes all things which are inferred. Because we know that the Word of God shows His people the simple ways of understanding these things. The law is good. If it's used rightly. So how is it used rightly? Look at that. If it's used rightly. To kill. If the law is used rightly, it's used to indict and bring the wage of sin, which is death. What other use? Oh, well, you know, historically, you got this use and that use. No, what does Paul say? I don't want to talk theological philosophy. I don't want to discuss history. I don't want to discuss a systematized expression that has been handed down through 600 years. That's a whole different conversation than shepherding the flock of Jesus Christ. That's a whole different scenario. I've recently read up on some new ideas concerning dark matter. I love it. I can't. I just, I got to stop subscribing to those things. I don't get the magazines anymore, but I love the ideas that maybe a black hole is our view of a whole nother universe. See, some of you that that's stupid. I don't care. I love it. And I could talk about it. I could talk about the math. I could talk about the Ideas. I could talk about the what ifs. Quantum theory. Energy. Light. Light. We haven't measured the speed of light. Because there's light we can't see. Light we don't know, you know. Wow. It's still nothing. It's still nothing. All of that declares the glory of God. It's not for us to grab hold of because when we grab hold of one rain, we see that there's a whole field full of wild horses out there. Ah, we've tamed nothing. The infinite glory of our powerful Father is just that. But what we want to do is we want to grab the reins and we want to attach them together to a, 
some type of harness and tether it to our property that we have the tax documents for and say, ah, this is my understanding. This is my doctrine. This is my gospel. Well, the law is good if it lays itself down according to its purpose, which is to indict and to bring justice. Is the law not there for justice? For justice. That's why when we don't meet it, we get penalized. Pulling out of a McDonald's in California. Matter of fact, I was in Palo Alto. And if you've ever been to Palo Alto, it's, it's like Mayberry with four million people. It's a small, quaint, packed community. And I pull out of this thing, and everything's so pretty, and the sidewalks are so pretty, and everything's so pretty. And there was a whole line of just like cops with slick, like, you know, the, the, the really cool uniforms. I don't know if they were getting on a horse or a bike, you know, they had that kind of outfit on. This is neat. And there was five of them lined up, and when I got my wallet out of my pocket, I unhooked my seatbelt, and the seatbelt was hanging right here. And I drive by, and I'm like, look at kids, look at all those cool cops with bikes. And I'm waving, and they all wave at me. One of them, woo, 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 turns this little siren on, I'm waving, that's so cool. And I buckle my seatbelt, and I get about half a block down the road, and I look in the rearview mirror, and he's pulling me over. He comes up to there, you having a good day, sir? Yes, sir. I see your license, please, if you don't mind. There you go. Oh, so you got uh, Virginia tags on this van. So, do they wear seatbelts in Virginia? Yes, sir. He goes, oh, you got it on. Did you have it on when you came by me? I went, I don't think I did. I didn't think so. Have a good day. 150 bucks. I mean, you know, what was the law for? Tax money. (laughs) It was to punish me. For not doing what was good for me. So we can learn what is good for us by learning the law. But we need to keep it in perspective. The reason that it's there is not to keep us from death. Though that is a benefit in the context of not stealing, not committing adultery, not coveting, not bearing false witness. Because some people will kill you for that stuff. But when it comes to the spiritual realm of redemption, to the gospel... It doesn't lead us there. It lands on top of us and it crushes us, you see. So I'm not contradicting myself. I'm putting things in perspective as Paul has laid it out. Because if we don't understand this, we're going to put our hopes and our attention on some of the instruction over the gospel. So the law is bad if it's used wrongly. How is it used wrongly? To control people. To distort the gospel. To put a burden on top of people that they cannot meet. To cause people to fear. To establish a sect of unity in the name of grace when it's really obedience to a law that kills. And sadly, thinking that we're obeying when we're actually not in the eyes of God. Or worse, thinking that our obedience does something to merit our salvation. And some of us are going, 
Nobody thinks that. Yes, they do. Just ask your neighbor. Go outside, knock on the door of your neighbor, and ask them if they know anything about Jesus and the Bible, and ask them how they get to heaven, how they know they can have eternal life. And they'll all have some iteration of doing what God expects them to do and being what God expects them to be. Go to the parking lots of any evangelical church and just ask the associate pastors as they come out. Ask the people coming to their cars. How are you right before the Lord? How are you pleasing before God? And they'll come up with some answer that talks about how well they're doing and they're no longer a drunkard or they're no longer a liar or they're no longer a thief. That's a lie. It's not true. Beloved, I've been called a liar a lot in the last year or so. And about which I was called a liar for, I haven't lied, but yet I am a liar. And all Boy Scout merit of not being a liar doesn't erase the fact that I'm a liar and it doesn't matter. I haven't honored the Lord with every fiber of my soul from conception. And so either way, if I haven't glorified God in everything I've ever thought, desired, or didn't even know, then I'm a liar too. And I'm an adulterer too. And I'm a murderer also. Because there's not a, I've done this but not this. If you're a liar, you're a murderer. If you're a murderer, you're an adulterer. If you're an adulterer, you're a, you're a, you bear false witness. You're, you see? We don't get to pick and choose how we do. We are all guilty. But here's the crazy thing. is Another way of using the law badly is to beat the church up with it. Because if I, I'm not a mind reader, but I know how I think. And I've been around enough people that think a little bit differently to get a good... I can get four or five different ways in which I think people think when they hear certain things. And I can promise you that some of us are in a spot of a little bit of attention thinking, I'm not living the way I ought to live. I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. You are right. You are correct. You tell the truth when you say, I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. Matter of fact, you haven't been doing what you ought to be doing. And right now you're not doing what you ought to be doing. And tomorrow you're not going to be doing what you ought to be doing. Sound familiar? The woman in Sychar. The commands of the Bible cannot be used to control people. To uproot the peace that comes... By the gospel of grace. And if we misunderstand the point of the law, don't do this, do this, don't touch, touch this, don't eat, eat this. What we do is we lay down penalty of the law. And we make all of us guilty according to the law. And if we misunderstand the law, we miss the good report. We miss grace, we miss love, we miss mercy, we miss hope. A misunderstanding of the law preaches a false Christ. Christ did not come to give the law. And God strike me dead if I ever say anything different. From Moses you have received the law. But from Christ you have received what? Grace and truth. 
Christ is not the lawgiver. He is not a lawgiver. He is the law fulfiller. He is the completion of it. He is the answer to it. He is the one who takes it away. He is the one who has suffered the penalty of it fully and completely. The penalty. He takes it away. Not take the law away, but takes the penalty of the law away. He fulfills it. He didn't earn righteousness through obedience. He learned righteousness through obedience. But he is righteousness in that process at all times and forever. The law, when it's misunderstood, all it does is create new laws. And sometimes those new laws come in the name of grace, which are at odds with Christ's atoning and finished work. And teachers teach these things by talking about them, by thinking about them, by writing about them. They go online, they create YouTube channels and everything else. They assert and command and dictate and this, that, and the other and mantra. And they get a good little tiny following of a couple of hundred people. And then it's just this echo chamber of law while they preach grace. You think, you think a YouTube channel that preaches the grace of Jesus Christ and Him crucified only and continually will ever get much information or much attention? No. It's not going to. But yet, we can all pick one. Just pick one. Just pick one. Pick one of the Decalogue and make it your banner and create you about five or six mantras that go along with that and how everybody in the name of Christ in the entire country is not fulfilling it and start you a channel to that end and you'll have thousands of followers. You can monetize that thing and make money. Which that's what that means. I'm so silly. You can do it. But we remove the offense of the cross. Hebrews, as we've gone, you know, when it talks about the person that does this and remains in sin and all that, he has no hope. And then the very next thing we see and the before that we see, it's all this, it's sprinkled in as a reminder of what these people did in the rebellion when God promised them eternal life through his power and his provision without explanation. And then what they did is not believe him but decided what must we do in order to obtain some type of life and focus of success. And God said they can just die out there. Teachers of the law, like these men and all of these people here, they, they were teaching in ignorance, making confident assertion, not according to grace and faith by the Spirit, but according to the law. And sometimes teachers who teach this thing think they're teaching grace. Or that they've segmented it to such a degree that they've got to hound it over here and then hound it over here and balance it out. Beloved, balance it out is not the answer. Preach it in the same measure in which it's preached in the Scripture. So when it comes up, preach it. It's always good to infuse grace and the gospel into every instruction. It's never good to infuse the law in every measure of grace. That's ridiculous. Christ saved His people from their sin. But you better do this! I mean, that's the very thing that Paul fought against. We get to those things in community. We get to those things in charity. We get to those things in love and good conscience and a sound mind and all of these other things. We get there with a sincere faith. 
by loving one another and instructing one another and those who are mature being patient with those who doubt and so on and so forth. The local church and everything that God has provided for us in his sovereignty is sufficient for you to know very clearly that you are not going to stand in the condemnation of your father. And when you find yourself in condemnation, what does John say? He says, your heart condemns you, but he is greater than our heart. And that's not a license to sin. But I don't have to stomp my feet and talk about license to sin. That's nonsense. Who has to talk? Who has to teach that? Unbelievers even know better. Paul mentions it. And he says, that's absurd. Absolutely not. We don't sin that grace may abound. Put away that mess. Put away the flesh and its wickedness and put away its flesh and its self-righteousness. You know those come hand in hand. Teachers of the law who use it illegally feed on the fear of those who worry too much when they should be preached to the gospel. They should, the gospel should be preached to them. The hope of Christ should be preached to them. See, people who are worried over their sin need to hear the grace of Christ. Because the one thing that's true, and the scripture teaches us, Paul really deals, deals this out good in Romans 6 and 7, is the one surefire way of you remaining in sin is to focus on the sin that you're trying to get rid of. It's to focus on the thing that you wish you could change. It's to really put your efforts into not doing something. I remember back at one of the universities where we had a youth camp that we were doing. And I won't get into any details of that because it was a, it was a, it was a hard time. 1,000, 1,100 high school kids. And one of the knuckleheaded pastors decided that he would bring an application to help these boys through this seven-day camp not commit adultery in their hearts. And so he bought them these big, thick, I can tie, a, tie an elephant down rubber band. And he put them on their right wrist. He says, anytime you have lustful thoughts, you snap. And I nicknamed that summer camp Snap Camp because that's all it was. That's all it was. That's all you heard all week. Snap, 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 snap. So about Thursday, I started taking those things up. <laughs> I said, you know, how much have you read your Bible? Your wrist is red. But your Bible's not. That was my joke. You should pack up and go home. That's not good. That's not good. These teachers rely on their own understanding of things and they're confident in their own personal standing while resting in the wickedness. And they need to be, they think everybody needs to be reminded of God's justice, but it's the preacher of the law who needs to be reminded of God's justice. It is the preacher of the law who uses it illegally to hurt the sheep who needs to be reminded, you really want to go there? You really want God to judge you by this standard? You know what it's there for, right? To convict you and to kill you. You see why we can't conflate the New Testament church and our living and the instruction of the New Testament writings? 
with the gospel and with the law of Moses. A new law often appears by the law of assurance of works, and if not that, it's salvation by the assurance of works. And this destroys faith, and it destroys our understanding of faith. It destroys repentance, which is a change of mind, which is evidenced by faith. Repentance is not about stopping sin and putting sin away, and that's not what the word means. It's never meant that, ever, anywhere. It's about a transformation of thinking. I am dead to sin because I am alive in Christ. So I'm a, what? A new creation. But I'm not a new man. I have a new man in me. The Lord. And by Him I live by faith. In Him who gave His life for me. This is Paul's, this is Paul's claim. So the gospel is not preached by saying repent of your sin. That's not the gospel. That's not even the precursor to the gospel. That's not what it means. That's some of these I've been going through, I've got a list of words, like 30. David and I were talking about it earlier this week. There's a list of words that are transliterated words or words that are so far removed from normal vernacular. You realize there's not but about three words in the entire New Testament that were inventions. There is an English translated opportunity for almost all the other words there but we and history have created new words and so we don't need to create new words we need to just say change what you're thinking now and listen and believe on what I taught you just now that's what Peter says to those Jews you're thinking you're here you're thinking you're doing some things that are going to warrant some type of grace toward you but it's not that change that thinking how am I supposed to change that thinking Focus on that thinking? Put it thinking out of our mind? No. Think on something else. The gospel is not preached when laws and commands are not rightly measured. What does that mean? You're not going to accomplish it. So if you live today until you're 600 and you never tell another lie, you're still a lawbreaker. You see what I'm saying? And that doesn't cause us to go, well, I'll just lie then by the grace of God. There's instruction for that as well. But our hope is not in becoming these things. Because it's not going to, so if I tell you what to do and Paul's going to tell us what to do, we're going to do them in practice, but we're really not doing them. We're going to fulfill some obedience in our life, just like we wear our seatbelts and other things, but we're really not obedient. In God's economy of justice, it's being just like He is, or you die. And you don't get do-overs. You don't get to build a system of points. We don't get to look at the day. There are pastors and preachers who would preach that at the end of the day in the judgment, there is going to be a measure of how much you have become perfect. Now what does that mean? Can you be almost perfect? You know what almost perfect is? Bad. Well, I think this mayonnaise is almost good. Eat it. Find out. Well, that hotel is almost clean. Well, that chicken on my plate is almost cooked. 
You're not almost holy. Holy is not a scale. It's complete separation forever. The gospel must overcome even the instruction found in the Bible. So that the, so that the saint, that the child of God, knows what resting really looks like as we're working, as we're obeying. We're not resting in those things. We're resting in Christ. But we're striving to godliness. And I know some people are like, well, this isn't really important. I mean, no, beloved, I talk to you all. I get your prayer requests. I know that most of us are struggling with this very thing. That's why it's going to be taught like this. Am I praying enough? And then when we are, what do we do? I feel so close to the Lord. Everything is so good. I know that I'm saved. And then all of a sudden, we might not say it with our mouth, but we do say ugly words about our neighbor in our head. We're not praying. We're aggravated. Or maybe we just don't want to. What's wrong with me? My desires. I don't, I want to be like I used to be. You ever, you ever felt that way? I wish I could be like I used to be. How about being where you are now? In Christ, forever, without fail. The gospel must overcome, grace must overcome even the simple instruction in the Bible. If we're not careful, we'll settle our seats on a new law thinking that it's grace. And my role as a pastor, shepherd, overseer, teacher, preacher is to make sure we don't. One of my roles. Why? So that your joy will be full. And then we go back to where we were last week. If we want our joy to be full, not only do we rest in the gospel, but we also do what the gospel teaches us. We do what Christ teaches us. But don't conflate our standing before the Father with our, how well we follow our instruction. But there is a temporal joy. There's a temporal blessing in obedience. And that's something that we've heard a lot. We know this. The wrong use of the law, as I've said, convicts, indicts, and destroys. And I believe, according to what Paul's teaching Timothy here, it destroys the very love of God in the body. The church is scattered. And the teaching that supposedly brings about change and conviction and unity actually kills everybody around it. Am I wrong? And so love and mercy and grace, this is the covenant of hope. We focus therein. So scripture reveals the law of God. Law, God's law is a revelation of His holiness. God's law is teaching us that He is not like us. He is different and separated from us in every way. Scripture reveals that we are not God and no one seeks after God, nor can anyone be like God. Scripture reveals... That the law is different from the gospel. It's different in that it has different promises. First, it's temporal. Second, it's a promise that it, you will lose. And the law has a different audience. We want to preach grace or we want to preach merit. Look at the Pharisees. Look at the ministry of Jesus. Look at the gospels. These people knew it. They really thought their obedience would satisfy God in some way to, to their eternal life. Romans 8.3 There is now, I've already said it several times, but there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not ever, ever with any possibility do. See, that's a misapplication. Some people think if they had been able to do right, they could have warranted and merited. And that's a very logical thing until we learn what Scripture teaches. We are born into sin. We are guilty in Adam. So God did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, ever. How? What? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now let me stop there, and I'm probably not going to have time to finish this teaching. This will be the last thing I say today. What is the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us? The law says we're guilty and we must die. Jesus Christ died for us so the law is satisfied. The law doesn't bring us life. It brings us condemnation. Jesus took our condemnation. Paul says that's a legal use of the law. That's lawful use of the law. Preaching grace. Preaching grace means we preach the fulfillment of the law where God destroyed Jesus Christ instead of us. Where God killed him instead of us. Who, we, who, the law is fulfilled in us, the righteousness and the requirement of the law, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we'll see what he says there in the remaining parts of this text. Look at that. Whatever is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of glory and of the blessed God with whom, with which I have been entrusted. So let me very quickly express that and we'll dig into that a little bit more next week. In accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God. So here we have this gospel, this grace, this mercy that is the fulfillment of justice. Why? Because Jesus took justice. This is simple gospel. This is something that is evident in the understanding of the basics of regeneration. Because the scripture teaches we cannot muster any righteousness. Christ who was sinless stood in the place of his people, and only he satisfies the wrath of God for us. What am I going to do? Rest. That's faith. Well, I can't rest. God will have to give you faith. You can't make it. God is happy with himself. He's happy with his... Essence, he's happy, he's blessed. He doesn't need anything. He has given us good news. He's happy with this good news. This blessed, great report. This God speak. This gospel, good speech. This good report, this good telling. That's what gospel means, God spell. Gospel. It means good telling. 
And there's a lot of ways in which that could be used. It's not just spiritual things. Gospel is a word that has lost its meaning. But when we talk about God's speech and God's good story, it is that He has given us to His Son and has purchased us from the law of death. And Paul says, I have been entrusted with this. You see, as a preacher of righteousness, we've been entrusted with this. So we have to be very careful because as I've told you all a thousand times, if I've said it once, it's very easy to manipulate everyone into fear and doing things the way it ought to be done. It's very much easier to tell someone and a child that if they don't eat their vegetables that the the sugar monster is going to eat their feet and they go to bed at night. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that because now there's going, is that real? You know, and y'all going to go home and say, yes, eat your vegetables. It's so much easier. If you get out of that bed, you're going to die. If you hit your sister, you're going to die. See, I said that a, a million times, and I meant it, but the law tells me I can't. The law of the United States tells me I can't. Because I probably have what, one kid. The one that got hit last. <laughs> you know? Paul has been entrusted. He's been entrusted with the law of God as a steward, and he uses that law lawfully to show that we will die if we trust in it. And he uses that law lawfully to preach grace, to show that the whole fullness of God's revelation to his people is merciful revelation, not menacing revelation. God is not a police officer or an undercover agent trying to find out what you're doing wrong. He knows everything already. For those of you who follow my social media feed, you've already heard all the points of this sermon this week. Scripture is breathed out. The gospel is in contrast to the covenant of law. And the scripture tells us that while holy wrath and justice is God's business, His greatest business and His revelation of Himself is His mercy toward His people in Christ Jesus by destroying and exercising that justice on Him instead of us. This great revealed picture, glory of good news. Jesus took on the law and its consequences. Jesus, the God, the Holy One, Jesus Christ, stood in the place of His people, and we are free. We are free. We are even free to pursue a level of obedience that would just give us good joy, but it won't give us the fullness of joy, because only Christ can do that. And ultimately, we have a testimony of righteousness, not because we've done well, and obeyed rightly, but we have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our credit, and we are clothed in His holiness. We have been snatched out of darkness and placed permanently into the unrelenting hand of our Savior, and nothing can snatch us away. God Himself cannot remove you, remove you, beloved, from His mercy. Why? Because He's already killed His Son. The debt is paid. So as we take this table today, this is what we're remembering. The law of God has crushed Jesus Christ, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, one who beat his parents. Isn't that crazy? 
That's what, that's what Paul says as a person that doesn't honor their father and mother. They slap and strike their parents. I couldn't imagine. I wouldn't be before you today. I mean, I couldn't imagine. Jesus was charged as guilty and destroyed as guilty, but he was not. So his death and the justice therein satisfied the wrath of God for us. When his blood poured out, it is because he died in our place. Let's prepare our hearts for the table as we remember that today. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we, in our minds, we're always going to find that our flesh wants to attach itself to a clear rule that would make us measure ourselves against a worldly standard instead of your righteous standard. And Father, some of us would even get so overcome by your loving grace that we may even say it doesn't matter if we sin, but Father, by your grace and through your tenderness, you've shown us that that's not to be. So Father, help us. Help us to live according to the testimony of the gospel in obedience to that which you teach us. But Father, keep us from ever trusting in who we've become as we always trust in who Christ is and what He accomplished. Lord, as we long for the day when we will become like Him, when we will become renewed, when we will be set forth without a sinful flesh, what a day. What an eternal day with no end. And as we take this table this morning, Father, let us remember that we are together in this grace. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.